0: Welcome, and thank you for listening to the West Hills Podcast. West Hills Church is a balanced, engaged, authentic, disciple-making church that serves the St. Louis, Missouri area with Sunday services at 9 and 10.45 a.m. For more information on our church, go to westhillsstl.org. Now, here's the sermon from Sunday. I know from uh, many of your social media posts and and some of your text messages to me over the past week or so that many of you, like me, have been following this revival that is uh, still going on now at Asbury University, now entering its 11th day straight uh, in uh, Kentucky there. Our own Pastor Brian uh, traveled there actually last week to Wilmore, Kentucky uh, to experience it for himself, and so I asked him to share some of his, his uh, insights and his, you know, gleanings and observations, and so here's how he described it for me, um, text message he sent me this week, he said, the room itself was simple, not produced or emotionally manipulative, but sweet and humble, people from all over the nation gathered to repent of their sin and seek God. He said, one of the sweetest things was that all denominations, generations, ethnicities were there. It seemed to be a small foretaste of heavenly worship. There was a shared bond and a love for God and his gospel that united everyone. He said, at one point, the whole room was called a confession. People stood up one by one, confessed their sins to the whole room, and we reminded them that the blood of Jesus covered them. Repentance and prayer were important to this gathering. It all began with a faithful prayer of those at Asbury 53 years ago for the Lord to awaken their community. And it started with this routine chapel service last week, 11 days ago, and the Lord drew many students back after the service to pray, confess sin. From there, more and more students continued to join, people from all over the the country. And then Brian said this, I just feel a sincere hunger for more of God especially from Generation Z and Christians all over the nation. They want to see God move and they are praying for it to happen. And friends, it is happening. God is moving. Similar outbreaks, days-long worship and prayer services have been reported. Campuses at Stanford University in Alabama, Cedarville University in Ohio, Lee University in Tennessee. God is on the move. And so I, I have two... Very simple questions to get us started this morning. Do we want to see a movement of God here in our midst, in our church? And secondly, if that is the case, if we want to see God move in our midst, if he were to do it, what would it look like? What would it look like if God moved in our church, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our city, on our campuses here in town? What should we expect from a genuine, bona fide movement of God? Well, I think our scripture passage for this morning offers us some clues. We uh, have been working our way through the opening chapters of the book of Exodus for a few weeks now, and last week, you might remember God called Moses to leave Midian, where he has been sojourning and hiding for 40 years now, and to return to Egypt, because now I'm going to use you to free my people. And despite all of Moses' excuses last week and his attempts to evade God's calling, Moses tried five times, you remember last week, to circumvent God's calling. You know, who am I? They're not going to listen to me. Send someone else. Nevertheless, God's will will prevail. Moses will return to Egypt in the second half of chapter 4 this morning in preparation for an unprecedented movement of the Lord. The Exodus, God's deliverance of his people from their bondage in Egypt, is the central climactic moment in all of the Old Testament. So, if we want to know how to prepare for a real, authentic, genuine, powerful, transformative movement of God, we will do well to consider these important chapters leading up to God's decisive. Action in chapters 7 through 14. The story is about to really take off, chapters 7 through 14, the plagues, the Passover, the parting of the Red Sea. We all remember those stories, but all of that begins here in chapters 4 through 6 by preparing for God to move. And so we're going to observe five traits here of a movement of God. So I'll show them to you in outline form. I finished this too late for the bulletins, but maybe this will help you organize your notes in your your little study journals we gave you. If I give you a preview, overview, every movement of God is marked by these five traits. Movement of God is blank demanding, blank including, fruit blank. I don't want to ruin it for you. Blank provoking and heart blank. That's all going to make sense. We're going to fill in the blanks as we go. I'll give you a hint for those of you who like to play Guess the Sermon Points. Uh, they're all going to start with the letter O this morning. That's your alliteration. Um, so with that, with that hint and that, that introduction in mind, I, would, I invite you to stand again with me as you're able. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 4, starting in verse 18, where we left off all the way through uh, the beginning of chapter 6. So long passage, stretch out, get comfortable, and hear the word of the Lord this morning. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. And so Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. And when they had heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshipped. Chapter 5 now. Afterward. Moses and Aaron went and said to the Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go. A three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they make, made in the past, you shall still impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard for their lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your own straw for yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday, as in the past? And then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh... Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But Pharaoh said, you are idle, you're idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now go and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks, And the foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce the number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and you have put a sword in their hands to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Now, Father, I pray just as you humbled your servant Moses uh, to a point of weakness. We had nowhere to look but up to you, cry out to you, lean on your strength, your power, your deliverance. Father, would you, this morning, humble me, humble all of us here this morning. We pray the prayer of John the Baptist, we must decrease, that you might increase. We want Christ to be magnified this morning. Would you make little, nothing of my words this morning? Make much of your word this morning? Your people are here to hear from you, Father. Would you speak through your word, for your glory, and our good? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The five marks of a movement of God. The movement of God is obedience-demanding. Specifically, the movement of God demands that we obey both God's calling and his commandments. Now, I'm just going to tell you right up front that Moses does not perfectly obey God's calling and his commands here. And as a matter of fact, Moses is going to fail, he's going to fall short in four of the five marks of a movement of God, as we will see. But that will only serve to highlight the fact if you take nothing nothing else away this morning. Hear this the point is that the Exodus is going to be a movement of God and not a movement of Pharaoh. And God allows Moses to fall short, that God might step in and deliver and get the glory. And nevertheless, the point still remains here that when God is on the move, God calls his people to follow his lead, to fall in line and obey obedience. Now, in one important sense, obviously Moses does obey. Last week, God instructed him, return to Egypt. Now we read in verse 20, Moses took his wife and sons and went back to the land of Egypt. He obeyed. It's good. He is to be commended for that, but the passage doesn't start in verse 20, does it? Notice what Moses does first in verse 18. Before he obeys God's calling, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. Now, two important things I want to point out about that. First, when God calls you to do something, you don't need anyone else's permission. Not your boss, kids, not your parents, not your teacher. When God calls you to do it, that's, that's all the word you need to hear. Now, a lot of commentators applaud Moses here for being so thoughtful, so deferential to his father-in-law, who had more or less adopted Moses for the past 40 years in Midian. And so they'll say, well, Moses was seeking Jethro's blessing here. But that's not what the text says. Now, Moses doesn't seek his blessing. What is he after? He seeks his permission, right? But friends, Moses doesn't need jethro's permission he's got yahweh's commission he's been sent directly by a message from the high king the authority above every authority and so he should if he's going back to jethro at all it should be to collect his family and inform jethro hey by the way i just need to let you know me and the family we're going to take take a trip for a while i've got some business to attend to Uh, i love your blessing not your permission though i've got to go god's called me Because when God calls, we obey. Moses is not to be applauded for his deference to Jethro. He should have been deferential to God. And secondly, please note, he also lied to Jethro about his reason for returning. He says, I'm going back to see whether my brothers in Egypt are still alive. That's not why he's going back. Why does he lie to Jethro? I think it's because he figured Jethro would think he was crazy if he told him the truth. That if Moses admitted, so God appeared to me personally, and he talked to me out loud from a bush. Uh, It was on fire, but it didn't burn up. And um, God has called me now to take your daughter, uh, Zipporah, and and your grandkids. And we're going to go back, and God is calling me, this 80-year-old fugitive shepherd, to free his two and a half million people from the most powerful person, most powerful nation on the planet at that time, Pharaoh in Egypt. Are you, are you seeing why Moses might have been tempted to just tell a little white lie? You know, if I tell him the truth, I won't make it out of Midian. I'm going to end up in a padded room somewhere. He's going to think I'm crazy. And so Moses, again, distrusts God's ability to make good on his promise. You know, Moses, it's not, it's not up to you to, to you know, manipulate and make sure this happens. You, you just be faithful. Just trust God. And do what he's called you to do and leave the rest up to him. So Moses ignores his, the commandments of God here, not to lie, not to bear false witness. But Moses disobeys his calling even more blatantly than that. In verses 21 through 23, look closely at God's instructions there with me. We read, The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles I put in your power, but I will harden his heart. He won't let them go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I'm going to kill your firstborn son. So, I count four direct orders that God gives Moses there. Do miracles, identify Israel as my son, demand their release for the purpose of serving me, and then warn Pharaoh of my punishment on him if he refuses to comply. Now, let's skip ahead together to chapter 5 and reread Moses' actual confrontation with Pharaoh in chapter 5 and just consider together. Does Moses do what he's been called to do? Chapter 5 Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. They said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or the sword. Do they perform miracles? No. Probably because Moses, once again, doubted God's. Power, his ability, his faithfulness to deliver, to come through in a pinch. It's like I'm going to be embarrassed of here. I throw the staff down, and it doesn't turn to a snake. Did they mention Israel's sonship? No. Perhaps again, Moses is afraid of offending Pharaoh. Pharaohs in those days they claimed to be the father over all of Egypt. So to call it, no, God's our father, we're His son. It's a direct offense to Pharaoh. Did they mention leaving in order to serve Yahweh? No. said, we're going to go out and hold a feast, sacrifice, party, worship, nothing about serving this God. Perhaps once again, they're afraid of angering Pharaoh. Pharaoh claimed to be God. He claimed to be the Lord of over all of Egypt. You're going to serve me alone. I'm your master. I don't care what God you claim. I'm your master. So they don't want to anger him Lastly, did they warn Pharaoh about the death of his firstborn? No. What did they say? They mentioned a threat to Israel, lest God fall upon us with pestilence or the sort. So apparently they tried to play the sympathy card instead. What's going to happen to us if you don't let us go, Pharaoh? In short, Moses and Aaron, they obeyed God's will, but they didn't do it God's way. And one cannot help but wonder if part of the reason that God allows Israel to continue to suffer under the weight of bondage for the next eight chapters now, instead of just liberating them right there on the spot, the book of Exodus might have been a much shorter book, uh, and he could, have, he could have set them free right there in chapter 5, perhaps, if not for Moses' failure to do it God's way. While we're at it, do you remember from last week in chapter 3, who God had instructed Moses to take with him when he confronted Pharaoh. Chapter 3, verse 18. Go back and look. It says, God said, you and the elders of Israel should go to the king of Egypt. But who actually confronted Pharaoh? Moses and Aaron went alone in chapter 5. Now, friends, it may seem like I'm nitpicking here, but when the almighty God of the universe tells you to do something, you should probably hang on his every word. Like, listen and obey carefully every little detail. Nitpick. If you don't think God is concerned with the specifics, with every minute detail, just wait until we get to chapters 25 through 40 at the end of Exodus, his instructions for building the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle and the priestly vessels. I promise, our God is a nitpicking God. And what you and I might consider tiny instances of disobedience are in fact a massive deal to a perfect, holy God. How big of a deal? Well, consider verses 24 through 26 here. Undoubtedly one of the most bizarre stories Not only in the book of Exodus, but in all of the Bible. What in the world is going on here? Zipporah's circumcision of her son. This passage is admittedly, it's vague, it's difficult to interpret, in part because of the ambiguity and the pronouns used here. You know, four different, you know, uh, the same pronouns used with no like object of the pronoun, antecedent. We read, the Lord met him, sought to put him to death. Zipporah touched his feet with the foreskin. The Hebrew there does not actually say it was Moses' feet. It just says him, his feet. And so God let him alone. He, he relented from his, his, what he had planned. So who is him? Is it Moses? Is it his son? If so, which son? Is it Gershom, his firstborn? Is it Eliezer, his secondborn? We don't know for sure. More questions than answers here. But let me just give you my best guess, quickly. I think that all the hymns here, in these three verses, refer to Moses' son. It was probably Gershom, his firstborn, because we're not even sure Eliezer is born at this point in the story. And also, so much of the focus of this passage is on the firstborn sons. God, I think, is in effect saying to Moses here, Moses, how are you going to rescue my firstborn son, Israel, and how dare you threaten Pharaoh's firstborn sons with death when you haven't even obeyed my very simple command of circumcision with your own firstborn son? And for context, the Midianites probably did not practice circumcision at this point. Time in history, and so Moses had effectively raised his son as a Midianite, not as an Israelite. And so this is sort of a, a graphic Old Testament version illustration of that principle, that New Testament requirement of an elder. An elder must manage his household well. For if someone does not manage his own household, how we care for God's church. If Moses can't follow God's commandments with his own kids, How in the world is he going to faithfully shepherd two and a half million Israelites out of Egypt and into the promised land? Movement of God demands obedience. Notice again, it's not even Moses who ultimately obeys God in verse 25, is it? Who circumcises him? It's Zipporah, his wife. She has to step in and save her son's life. I can just imagine that conversation. Moses saying to her, look, hey, I washed my hands, but you're the Midianite. You're the reason we didn't circumcise him 40 years ago when he was born. It's going to hurt. I don't want him holding this over my head the rest of his life. I don't want you holding it over my head that now, you know, we're following my customs instead of your Midianite customs. This is more passive leadership from Moses. Who am I to free Israel? Who am I to cut off his foreskin? And so Zipporah says, look, give me the flint. I'll do it. And interestingly, the word that she uses here translated bridegroom, chatan in Hebrew, 12 of the 20 times it's used in the Old Testament, it actually means son-in-law. So I think what she's declaring here, I think the better translation is not bridegroom of blood, but I think she's declaring her son, Gershom, has now become like her son-in-law to her because he was Midianite like her, and now he's become Israelite like Moses. So we'll learn later in chapter 18. At some point along this journey, Zipporah and the kids go back home to Midian. And I am guessing, in speculation, I'm guessing that it was right after this incident at this lodging place in the end of chapter 4. Before they even made it to Egypt that she turned back. Admittedly, that's a lot of that's speculation. But one thing we know for certain, Okay get us back on track, is that God had commanded his covenant children to be circumcised all the way back in Genesis 17 with Abraham. Moses had failed to follow that simple command thus far with his own child, and yet a movement of God demands our obedience. And this is the first thing that we need to recognize, church. If we want to see God move, if we want to see revival break out, West Hill, St. Louis, in our midst, God is calling us to obedience, to simple faithfulness to the revealed will and word of God. It's the same promise that God made to Solomon, 2 Chronicles uh, 7, 14. God promised, if my people who are called by my name, if they will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them and I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. Obedience. Obey me. Humble yourself. Pray. Seek me. Repent. And then I promise I will move. I will hear you. I will forgive you. I will heal your land. Number two. I'll go much quicker on the last four of these. A movement of God will be other, including... Remember, Moses was supposed to include others, all the elders of Israel. When he confronted Pharaoh in chapter 5, he will fail to do that, but he does at least initially do a good job of rallying the troops. He gets his brother Aaron on board with the movement in verse 27. He meets back up, long lost brother Aaron, and then they both gather together all the elders of the people of Israel in verse 29. They get them on board. And in verse 27, 31, we read, the people believed Moses. Isn't that great? After all of his worrying, his doubting God last week, all of his arguing with God, well, they're not going to believe. They're not going to listen to me. Who am I to lead them? They're not going to follow me. God proves to him here Moses, if you would just listen and obey me, good things will happen. I will come through. Because God always desires to include others in his work of redemption. God could have, listen, God could have delivered the Israelites by himself. He didn't need Moses, but God wants to include us in his work of redemption and what he's doing in transforming this world We see it time and time again, all through scripture, God moving personally, but never privately. God's work is always corporate. It's communal. God is making a people for his own possession, not just a person. Whenever God does choose a person, a a singular leader, an Abraham, a Moses, a David, uh, even a Jesus, a Peter, a Paul, when God chooses a leader, it's always for the sake of calling a people. God promised Abraham, I'll make you into a great nation and bless all nations through you. And then God fulfilled that promise in Jesus. I mean, of all people that could have just done it himself, who didn't need anybody, Jesus calls 12 disciples, 12 knuckleheads, uh, to share the, the workload, to empower them, and then commission them to go out and not only continue, but actually expand the work that he began, expand his kingdom work, go and make disciples of all the nations. Now I'm giving you the power to do it. We see it in the way Jesus has designed his church down to this very day, 2,000 years later. Not to be headed up by a pastor at the top who does all the ministry while everybody else just writes my, my paycheck, but rather, Ephesians 4, he gave the pastors to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so we all attain to the unity of the faith and grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. He's the head, from whom the whole body, all of us, Joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We've all got a role to play in God's grand vision of redemption. As each has received a gift, 1 Peter 4.10 exhorts us, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Listen, that's why we're calling you to step up on Step Up Sunday. As I announced all the cards out there, that's what it's about. It's a, it's a way to allow you to be a part of the movement of God, of what God is doing here at West Hills. You don't want to miss out on the fun. And it's one of the things that historians of all the great movements of God in the past agree on is that, sure, you know, the Great Awakening had its it's George Whitfields and its Jonathan Edwards the first century explosion of the church it had its peters and its pauls but for every peter and paul for every a famous leader famous equipper there were thousands of unknown saints who were equipped to do the work of ministry taking the movement into the streets and the trenches and that is Something else that Pastor Brian pointed out to me about the Asbury revival, he said one of the things that really struck me was the lack of a celebrity pastor or a star worship team. As a matter of fact, some celebrity there's been a report some celebrity pastors tried to show up at Asbury to like get in on on it, and they were like, "No, we're good. I mean, you can like sit and worship and participate, but you're not getting up to the pulpit. We we don't." This is a movement of God. It's not going to be co-opted by anybody. It's just ordinary people being filled with the extraordinary power and spirit of God. Number three, a movement of God will be fruit originating. It will necessarily generate fruit, originate, produce fruit. In verse 30... Moses offers these elders of the people the proof that God had in fact sent him by doing the signs in the sight of the people, by turning his staff into a serpent, then back to a staff again, turning his skin leprous, and then back to skin again. Now, we don't have time this morning to discuss the role of miracles and God's movement today, but one thing we all have to agree on is the very simple truth that Jesus taught, you will know a tree by its fruit. That that was the litmus test going back all the way to the prophets in the Old Testament, how God's people were going to know if someone was a real prophet from God or if they were a fake prophet. God said when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word doesn't come to pass or come true, then that word wasn't from the Lord. The proof is in the pudding. It's the same principle here with Moses. The Israelites could just see. The proof is in the pudding. Moses is filled with God's power because he's manifesting it to them in signs and wonders. And again, don't want to get into it regardless of your personal theological position on cessationism, continuationism of the miraculous gifts and whether or not, you know, all these pastors doing healings and whatever, if that's legit. Regardless of any of that, one thing we can all agree on is what? The fruit of the Spirit. What's the fruit of the Spirit? Love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Moreover, with such things, every true follower of Christ will be filled. Every true movement of God will be marked. Many of you have asked me in the last week and a half, what do you think about what's happening in Asbury? Is it legit? My reply is, We'll know a tree by its fruit. What is, the, what is the fruit of what's going on in Asbury right now? Is their campus becoming a more loving place? Is it more joyful, more peaceful, more kind, good, faithful, gentle, self-controlled? We should ask the same questions of ourselves here at West Hills. This church has grown like crazy in the last four years. I praise God. So did the first century church. But you know what? So too did 7th century Islam. Grew like crazy, wildfire. You know, Joel Osteen pastors the largest church in our country, and I can promise you it's not because God is really moving there. And so gaining a lot of followers is not the fruit of a movement of God. You can gain a lot of followers a lot of different ways. No, the fruit of the movement of God is are we growing as much qualitatively as we are quantitatively as a church. Are we a more loving church today than we were four years ago? Are we a more a peaceful church, more joyful church, more kind than we were four years ago? I hope and pray that that is true of West Hills. That is the fruit of a movement of God. And so too, by the way, is worship. Chapter 4 ends with verse 31. When they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and what? Worshiped. Every true movement of God will result in worship. But number four, it will also result in opposition. A movement of God will necessarily Provoke opposition. This is the longest section of this passage, 21 verses in chapter 5. We're not going to spend the most time on it, though. We're not going to reread the whole thing, because the long and short of it is simply this. Every movement of God will inspire, provoke, spark opposition. Both externally, from the outside, that's the first 18 verses here, focused on Pharaoh's hostility toward Yahweh and his people, Verse 2, he says, Yahweh. Pfft, who is Yahweh? I haven't heard of Yahweh. Oh, well, I haven't heard... It. Why should I listen to Yahweh's voice? I don't even know this God. Moreover, Israel, Israel isn't going anywhere. I'm their, I'm their master. As a matter of fact, if, if you all have so much time on your hands, so much time that you think you can manage a week-long vacation out into the desert for, you know, this praise and worship service or whatever, feast and sacrifices, then I'll tell you how you're going to use all that extra time. Here's how you're going to use it. You can start finding your own straw to, to use in the bricks that you need to make in order to complete the construction projects that I'm demanding that you do. Verse 9 Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it. And he says, pay no regard for the lying words of Moses. He says, Moses, I'll teach you to spread lies amongst my slaves about what God's calling you to do to try and get out of some work. He says, you're just trying to make them lazy. Tell you what, double the work, triple the work. And then when it proved physically impossible for the Israelites to keep up with all the work, and yet the Egyptian taskmasters just keep mercilessly beating them anyway, where did they turn? Where where did the the Hebrew foreman, the Israelite foreman, where did they turn? Did they turn to God in prayer? God, help us, rescue us. Verse 15, no. They ran straight to who? Pharaoh. Pharaoh. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh. And notice, they still identify themselves as his servants. They say, why are you treating your servants like this? They haven't yet even begun to think of themselves as the Lord's servants. They're so ingrained in this slavery mentality. And as we're going to see, you know, if we keep studying eventually Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the rest of the Torah, I mean, it's a lot easier as hard as it is, you've got to split a sea to get them out of Egypt, it's still a lot easier to get God's people out of Egypt than it is to get Egypt out of God's people. And that's, that's true of us too, isn't it? When it comes to enslavement to our own sin. I mean, Jesus, once and for all, it is finished on the cross. He took care of our sin. It can be a whole lot harder for us to actually live into that new identity as free. All, all the glorious truths we sang about this morning, I, I'm I'm free. Right, my sin is redeemed. It's, it's washed clean. I'm not a slave anymore. It's a sin. Notice too, how, how do you think that these mid, middle-level management, Israelite foremen even got an audience with Pharaoh? I mean, he's the most powerful man in the world. And they're a bunch of slaves. Why does he even let them in his court? I'll tell you why. It was part of his plan to turn the Israelites against Moses. And it works, because that's exactly what happens in verses 19 through 21. And this is where we get opposition, not just externally from Pharaoh, but now Moses and Aaron, they're being opposed internally from their own people they're trying to free, are now rebelling against them. The foreman met Moses and Aaron as they're coming out from Pharaoh. The Lord look on you and judge you, Moses, because you've made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh. You put the sword in his hand that he's using to kill us. It's all your fault, Moses. We were fine when we were just, you know, slaves, making bricks. Now, now it's twice as hard. Moses, and what started as just external opposition is now internal. And it will continue again. This is not the last time that God's people will rebel against him by far. So what's the relevance for us today? We too today must recognize that every movement of God will encounter opposition both externally from the world, from the devil, as well as internally, even from those within the church. If you're not getting persecuted, you're not doing something right. I mean, Jesus promised it. It was certainly true of early Christian followers as the church exploded from Jerusalem and grew exponentially day by day. As you remember in our study last year of the book of Acts together, the church, it started not only that, first of all, the reason it expanded in Acts 8 was because of persecution. God, this is how God works redemptively. He uses persecution to scatter and to spread his church, to advance his kingdom. And yet also, Right around the same time, the church starts facing internal opposition as well. You may, might remember there's a bunch of Jewish Christians that didn't so much appreciate that this movement of God was now including Gentiles. They didn't appreciate They wanted Paul to stop preaching to the Gentiles. But again, Jesus had warned his church, a generation before this, that all of this would come true. Beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. You're gonna experience internal opposition from the people sitting in the pews beside you. They're gonna stab you in the back (laughs) because there's some wolves in here that don't belong. Jesus is clear, and especially external opposition from the world. Jesus warned all who would follow him, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If they persecuted me, guess what? They're going to persecute you. You're in good company. In the world, Jesus prom- we, we love all the glorious promises of Jesus. How about this one? In this world, you will have what? Trouble, tribulation, opposition. But then how does Jesus finish that? promise from John 16. Do you remember? He says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus promised, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has not promised us a life free of opposition in this fallen, broken, sinful world Much the contrary, what he has promised us is to be with us in the midst of it, never to leave or forsake us. If we will but turn to him, quit running to Pharaoh and trying to bargain with your sin. Please just enslave me a little less and turn to God. And that's the last point here. Number five, for all of his failures, Moses gets one thing right here at the end. Very right. And it's the most important ingredient of all in a movement of God. While the Israelite foreman, they run to Pharaoh with their problems. Where does Moses turn in verse 22? Then Moses turned to the Lord. A movement of God, if it is anything, it must be heart-opening It is an opening of our hearts collectively, a turning of our hearts back to the Lord in prayer and in faith. We cry out to God in prayer and we count on God to come through in faith. We give God both our cares, our concerns, as well as our hope and our trust. We get real with Him. God, this stinks. Why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me, God? I don't know if you noticed, but your plan doesn't seem to be working. You can get real with God. He can take it. Moses got real with you. God would rather you come to him with your problems and your complaints than go to Pharaoh, your sin. See, we get real with God, but then we rely on him. We trust him. We trust him when he says... In chapter six, now stand back and watch what I'm about to do. I love Philip Ryken's commentary on this verse. He says, "Sometimes God allows our troubles to continue in order to prove that only He can save us. When Moses failed to change Pharaoh's mind, it became more obvious than ever that only God could set His people free." It was precisely when Moses despaired of providing deliverance himself that God stepped in and said, Now you will see what I will do. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it in the New Testament, when he was at his lowest point, when Paul was at his lowest, what did he say? He said, I pleaded with the Lord. Did he remove all my hardship? No. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses and insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Friends, when you and I are at our very weakest moments, we are right where God wants us to be so that he can step in and move in our midst and prove that only he, only God alone can be the source of our deliverance. Only God can save me from something like this now. That's what God specializes in. And why should we trust him to do it? Because God has already provided us the greatest deliverance of all. Work that only he could have possibly done. Colossians 1.13. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Don't you see how all five of these aspects, these marks of a movement of God, ultimately, they point us to Jesus, the greatest movement of God in all of history, 2,000 years ago. Jesus offered God the obedience that we should, but so often don't. Jesus empowered and included others, even those we exclude. Jesus backed up his bold claims of being God with fruit, with actions, with signs and wonders, resulting in worship all to the praise of God the Father. Jesus was opposed both externally by the the Romans and the Pharisees who wanted to crucify him, and even internally by his closest friends. Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him, opposed him, opposed the crucifixion. Jesus had to say, get behind me, Satan. He was oppressed, opposed, and yet Jesus was obedient all the way to death, even death on a cross. Like Moses, Jesus cried out to God in his pain. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus got real with God. Just like Moses, you can too. Why have you forsaken me? But then he relied on God. Not my will, but your will be done, O Lord. I'm going to trust you, God. This is not my plan, but I understand it's your plan, so it must be must be good. and I'm going to trust you. And in the end, Jesus did entrust himself to God. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And because he did, God has now exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.